and welcome to episode one of the STEM Corner podcast. My name is Oindri Chatterjee, and my love for STEM blossomed from a three-day workshop held by Semi High Tech U. I became exposed to the realm of semiconductors, chip manufacturing, logic gates, and the effect social media has on the world. Semi-HiTechU's program inspired me to join robotics and become an active member of Girls Who Code. Now, I want to use my inquisitiveness to learn about the different fields in STEM and share my journey with like-minded people like you that want to feel inspired and motivated. The whole purpose of the STEM Corner podcast is to recognize the different fields of study in STEM to better understand their contributions to society, not only today, but also in the long run through a series of enthusiastic guest speakers. Each episode is designed to be enriching to help you discover your passion and to pursue your dreams. In this episode of the STEM Corner, I am thrilled to be speaking to Crystal Snow Riley, who is a senior software engineer at Google. Crystal, welcome and thank you for being here with us today. Thanks for having me. Crystal, tell us a bit about who you are and give us a glimpse of your role at Google. Thanks. I'm originally from Alaska. Actually, there's not very many of us. I'm, I've lived in the Bay Area now for probably about six years. I have lots of hobbies. I'm generally a curious person. I enjoy kayaking, baking, and video games as is a common hobby amongst the software folks. Uh, and I'm currently a senior software engineer actually on Google search. So when you Google things, you can think of me. As someone, I should mention that as a Googler, um, I am a Google employee, but none of my thoughts here today actually represent Google. I'm here just representing myself and helping the enthusiasm for STEM, but none of the things I say today are actually representative of Google as a whole. Mm -hmm. I noticed that you are a senior software engineer. So how does your particular position relate to a software engineer? Yeah, there are many different positions in tech. Lots of times software engineer gets kind of bucketed into a very large bucket, but most tech companies have very different steps along the ladder for what it looks like to be a software engineer. Some companies have a junior software engineer, which would be an entry level position. Then you have software engineer, which would be your place you'd get promoted to after being sitting at a junior engineer. And then there's senior software engineer. There's some places have a staff or a principal software engineer and some have distinguished software engineer. And so there's a lot of ladder climbing that can be done in the software engineering field and different tech companies will have different names for these roles. Beyond just software engineering, tech is actually made up of many people to get technology to be built. So we have oftentimes product managers and designers 
and managers to manage people at medium and large size companies. And so it takes a lot of people to actually build technology and uh, software engineers are but one piece of the puzzle. <laughs> and from what I've learned so far, working at Google, so mainly focusing on Google's fact-serving engine, Google search is something that you are really passionate about. So my question to you is, what do software engineers do on a daily basis? And is it all just coding? It's a, it's a common stereotype that software engineers kind of just code all day. Um, there's sometimes a basement stereotype that kind of goes with it, where you're just sitting in a dark basement writing your software. And that's really not true. Some engineers will code more than others, depending on your role, depending on what you're actually building. But a lot of software engineering is in design and in discussion and in prioritizing and in deadlines. So I would say that while when I walked into a software engineering position, I would have thought that it would have been about 90% coding. I think it's turned out to be a little bit more about like 60% coding. And as you grow into positions that are a little bit higher up, that number starts to decrease. And so since I've been a senior software engineer, that number has decreased to easily 10% of my time actually goes into coding, or a lot more of my time is actually spent discussing and arguing about code, honestly, where people have different perspectives or how different pieces of the code should fit together. It's a, quite a collaborative process, especially on a project as large as Google Search. When you have lots of engineers, you need to be aware of how the pieces are gonna fit together and you need to have deep discussions to make sure that the system can grow coherently over time and there's not bugs that surface due to how the code will actually interface with, it, with one another. Right, right. And earlier you mentioned that you are from Alaska. So what was your introduction into STEM? I'm pretty sure you had a, an interesting journey coming into the Bay Area. Yeah, so the introduction into STEM was kind of arguably the common mode for software. I enjoyed video games and I enjoyed hacking on the video games. Realistically, where me personally, my introduction came from was actually, I was playing a lot of World of Warcraft and I had a member of my guild, World of Warcraft guild, who was a software engineer in Melbourne, Australia, other side of the world, it seems. <laughs> and we were just hacking on various video game concepts, breaking video games here and there. And I learned how to code by just kind of messing around with, um, with him and our guild friends, just trying to build stuff together and hack stuff together. And so I think the first project I had was we were building a guild website. Um, and that was my first introduction to, to kind of software. And he was very open-minded to letting us kind of mess around with him and with his code, especially. So it was, it was very, it was, it was a very interesting opportunity and it came from video games and messing with the video games that we started started to learn. So, I mean, one of my pieces of uh, my golden nuggets of wisdom I would provide would be that your connections with people really shape your opportunities. If, if it hadn't been for such a person in my life, then I'm not sure I would have had that such an introduction. So um, I definitely came from a, a small town. And so it was like coming into the into the Bay Area was a big transition, but we can talk more about that at another time. But the 
coming from a small town, especially when I started into university, I went from being a big fish in a small pond to being a very tiny fish in a very large pond <laughs> when I kind of went into a, a larger scale environment. And I think the last thing about coming from a small town that's interesting was actually whenever I was taking my computer science class in high school, I was lucky enough to have a computer science class in high school, though there was only four of us in that class. Wow, that's, that's crazy. And that's super, super cool. But your teacher in high school, did he have prior experience to programming? Actually, an interesting topic. Um, my computer science teacher, he actually reached out to me where, based upon my math background in middle school was saying, hey, you, you have a good math score. You might be interested in a computer science class. And I didn't really know computer science that well. I really only knew that, you know, coding was a thing that I did to mess with my video games. But I decided to take the class uh, anyway, and it actually ended up being uh, very interesting. I very much enjoyed it. And one interesting thing about this class is because I'm kind of from a small town, the class actually only had four people in it. And two of us were girls and two of us were boys. And so I actually had no idea that there was a gender gap to say in STEM or in computer science. It's an interesting way to grow up and it was a nice, nice place to kind of have a safe place to learn our computer science. But after about uh, three years of computer science, my teacher turned to me and said, sorry, I have nothing more to teach you. And that, that was an interesting thing to discover, like what happens when your teacher decides that, okay, I have nothing more. This is partly because my teacher actually was a music teacher originally, and he taught himself a lot of the computer science that he learned to teach us. And so after about three years of speeding through his material, he said, okay, I have nothing more to teach you, but I can teach you the most valuable skill of all, how to teach yourself, which actually in technology is very critical. The tech industry moves very quickly. And if I were writing code today, the same way that I did five years ago, who knows if I would still have a job? That's not how the software works anymore. So it's really, it was a really valuable skill and it's actually come in handy in more than just tech as I've had to keep up with things beyond tech. The first time it actually came in useful was when I went to university at the University of Texas at Austin. My first calculus class that I took, because I was a small fish, in a big pond for the first time, I thought that I was like, oh yeah, I was good at math. I got this. And the first thing I did was go and immediately fail a calculus test. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And so it's like my first, my first exam, my, my 8 a.m. calculus class, the, the first thing that I did, I think two or three weeks into school is I fail a calculus exam. And it uh, really shook me and I was a little, uh, unsure what to do. And, but I think it was a very important moment for me. It was a very important moment to realize that it was humbling. First of all, like I was not all that. <laughs> I have a lot to learn. And by 
having the skill that my teacher had taught me for how to teach myself, I sat down with that calculus book every weekend for the next two or three weeks. And I read the entire calculus book so that I could really figure out where I went wrong. And after that, I was on track. I was able to study and learn and keep up. So that skill of being able to teach myself was not only useful in technology, but just useful in general whenever I transitioned to a much larger scope environment of university uh, to be successful there. So I think failure is a necessary part to grow. Actually, as a part of that, I started out as a music major actually in, in university. I enjoyed music. It was, uh, I had the idea that if I had a job in something that I loved, then I would never work a day of my life <laughs> until I actually got there and saw how much better most of those people are at their particular instruments than I was. And so I realized that to stand out as a musician, I'm not sure I would be able to. It's, uh, <laughs> and so I, I went to look for other things that I could augment my skill set in university. Just general advice, I think it's a very good idea to try more things than necessarily what you think you might be interested in in university. Branch out, take a class that you never thought you might be interested in because it's really the only time in your life where you're really free to just learn whatever you can. So take advantage of that opportunity if such opportunity presents itself. So I actually transitioned to be into particle physics which was very interesting. I'm still actually to this day excited about particle physics. It's very fascinating, very fascinating subject. And I also didn't have much of a background in physics either. So it was very interesting from a general standpoint. Mm -hmm. And I ended up uh, actually double majoring in particle physics and uh, computer science. The, one of the lessons that I learned, especially because in physics, I didn't have much background either, was that asking questions makes you look smart, not dumb. I think a lot of people are hesitant to ask a question for fear of asking a dumb question. And as many times, as many cheesy lines as people lay about, oh, there's no such thing as a dumb question. Like, it's true. Like, if you're asking questions that shows that you understand things well enough to be curious, and that's super valuable. And even in my day job, if I have a new hire or someone who changed teams and they're not asking questions, I assume something's wrong. Like, oh, this person doesn't understand what's going on enough to ask questions. So if you find yourself in a student setting, an academic setting or in a work setting and you're worried about asking those questions, I would advise you to just try to be brave in that moment and ask that question because it really does make you look smart, not dumb. My introduction to the, the Bay Area was uh, actually as transitioning to university. University is expensive here in the United States. Uh, it's always a bit brokish. <laughs> I ended up coming to the, the Bay Area on an Intel internship. And my major motivation was uh, honestly that I just needed a job and I was kind of looking to see. And there was a very interesting moment when I went to the career fair in university. And on my uh, resume, I had at the top, uh, oh, student in particle physics, oh, student in computer science, and taking honors courses in computer science. And employers would take my resume, mm -hmm. they would circle the honors computer science class at the top, and they would put my resume in a separate pile. 
Wow. And that was the day that I realized, oh, having, there's a lot of demand for computer science. Like this is a, a field that's hiring. And if it's something that you can, it's a better way to say this is if you are studying computer science, you'll have more opportunities presented to you because it is a field that's in such high demand. Mm -hmm. And as a result, it, uh, it, it can, it can pay well in certain areas as well. So the, after I went to uh, Intel, I ended up uh, at Google a couple summers later. Uh, just I kept coming out to the Bay Area because the weather's nice, uh, because uh, it's a, a good place for internships. And it seems many of the companies out here are, are looking for summer interns. So I ended up at Google. My first internship, I think I was on the Gmail team. It's pretty fun. I now work in Google search, as you know. And uh, I've been I've been at Google now for five years. Very exciting. And ju just as a, a point to say that you know I kind of started out as a music major, and then I ended up studying physics. And then I came to the Bay Area on an Intel internship, working on firmware. Uh, and now I work on Google Search. Like this is not a path I could have planned. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I just want to I want to point out that there is no recipe for success here. That we if we had a recipe, we would put it in a frame, golden frame even, and point to it and say, everyone should do this. It's, it's just not true. There is no recipe for success. We kind of all carve our, our own journey here. So if you're someone who is stressing about like, well, I have to take these classes, otherwise I can't go get hired at this job that I want, uh, it, I would invite you to let go of some of those concerns and, and realize that we kind of all make our own paths here and that there is no recipe. You can change your mind, you can fail, you can trip, and all these things will still, are, are not deal breakers to leading you to the direction that you wanna go. Yeah, that is very relieving as a student. So um, before we move on, let's just take a moment to review Crystal's very inspiring words of wisdom. So. As she mentioned, your connections with people shape your opportunities, and I can confirm this to be true because networking with other people has helped me learn so much more, and meeting new people gives me a new perspective on the world. You never know until you reach out. Um, another thing Crystal mentioned is that knowing to teach yourself is the most valuable skill you can learn, especially during the pandemic. Many people are working or schooling from home and with less interaction with other people, I think it's necessary to have the ability to learn on your own. Another thing Crystal mentioned is that failure is necessary to grow. And I realize now that this applies to everyone and that it is important to understand that mistakes are temporary and that you will learn from them and grow to become a better person. She also mentioned that asking questions makes you look smart, not dumb. And even I have fallen into this trap before, feeling insecure about what others would think of me. And turns out everyone is too worried about themselves to notice everything that you do. So just go for it. And lastly, as Crystal mentioned, there is no recipe for success. 
Yeah. So um, how does the Silicon Valley compare to Alaska? Because I'm pretty sure they are very, very different. They, they're definitely different. And this is all perspective that's shaped by my experience. And when I came to the Bay Area on my first internship, I was 19 years old. And it was the largest metropolitan area I had ever been in. It was my first time riding a light rail. <laughs> and uh, so it was, it was It was actually a quite eye-opening experience. I remember calling my mother on the phone and saying, wow, mom, it's like there's cities and then they're all grew together. So it's now like a big city that's made up of little cities. <laughs> and she's like, yes, it's called a metropolitan deer. <laughs> so it was definitely uh, a culture shock. But in some ways, it's actually quite similar. I find that the Bay Area is very outdoorsy and kind of you know climate concerned and has this care for nature that I think also exists in Alaskans. I think this kind of love of nature and the sensitivity towards kind of preserving what's around us and you know go for a hike on a sunny day and no one's going to judge you. I think that's that's a, a really nice kind of area culture that I that I enjoy. One thing that I kind of love about Silicon Valley, one of the reasons I've decided to still live here is the kind of spirit of innovation that lies in the area. There's kind of this this idea that if you don't like what you see, well, the future is on us. Like we can change it. We have that power. It's all of us together. And I think we see that with some of like the, the startup culture and the different pieces, different ideas people have and a lot of activism in the Bay Area. And I think I find that very inspiring to be around. Just this reminder that we're not we are our future like we we can we can impact the, the world and change it for the better yeah it's really interesting to learn about your perspective especially since you are from alaska and i'm not <laughs> how will the work of software engineers like you shape society in the future that's uh, that's the big question right <laughs> I think uh, software is really everywhere. I don't think people realize how much software there is in, in everyday life. Your, your car has software in it. Your traffic lights have software in them. Anytime that you watch a film, the film, it's a weird name to use for a film nowadays. It's, there's no longer film. But uh, any movies you watch oftentimes have huge amounts of computer-generated content. Any music you listen to, the, the kind of tech techno music scene that's existed since the uh, since the 90s like there's software everywhere and so I would actually say that I think everyone would benefit from a little bit of coding because it is really everywhere even if you want to be a musician like where I started out knowing how to code will really enable you to have the full breadth of creativity it allows you to emulate instruments to hear what your composition may sound like before you can actually find people to perform the parts. If you want to be an artist, most of your art will be most widely distributed in the digital realm. Knowing how to code can make some of your art go by faster. If you want to become a scientist, you want to go be a geologist, someone who goes and inspects rocks, you're still going to have a decent amount of software to simulate different environments to understand how your rocks are going to move. You want to be a mathematician. Well, if you're going to be perusing a space of prime numbers to understand the 
implications of your different mathematics and proof-based mathematics, you'll probably use proof engines and various types of logic coding in order to actually make discover your new mathematics. So if you have a little bit of coding skill, it's gonna make whatever path you choose for yourself a little bit easier and make you a little bit better at it and present you with more opportunities. If you wanna go into tech, I think software, um, there's a huge number of opportunities in, in tech right now. And if you want to improve your odds of being able to find, find a job or change the world, then having software as one of the skills in your toolkit will enable you to have more impact on society at large. No matter what, coding is gonna be part of your life. You're gonna to have to deal with the traffic lights. It's all around us and it's the future. Thank you so much for your time, Crystal. Your story is truly inspiring. Thank you. Thanks for having me today. It's been a pleasure talking with you. And to all the listeners out there, I really appreciate the support. If you enjoyed this episode, please feel free to subscribe to the STEM Corner and drop a review. Thank you, and I'll see you next time.